sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after these readings, uh, you're probably thinking something along the lines of, well, this should be interesting. And indeed, uh, there, there's an ironic moment in the letter of Second Peter uh, chapter 3 where, where Peter, the apostle Peter, says there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. It's a little bit ironic. We might say, well, Peter, there's a few things in your letters, too, that are hard to understand. Uh, and, and these would be some of those portions of Scripture. Uh, they are some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand. Entire books have, have even been written about these verses. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, wrote this about them. He said, this is a more obscure passage than, uh, than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. Uh, and we may well have to take our stand there with Martin Luther. Uh, perhaps we should start then by, by just uh, reading again these, these difficult verses, verses 18 to 22, so we can gain a grasp of them. So I'll read them again, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now there are, there are many mysteries in this text that we want to try to resolve as best as we can. Uh, and one of those is, what is Peter talking about when he speaks of Christ being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits who are in prison? That's one of the questions we want to work through. What event is, is Peter describing there? Uh, and then the other, the other big mystery that we want to think through uh, is, what does Peter mean when he says of baptism, that baptism saves you? Uh, and related to that question, we'll be wanting to work through, what does he mean that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience? Uh, so those are the two, the two main uh, mysteries we want to work our way through. In my first attempt at writing this, this sermon, uh, I tried my best to lay out all of the different interpretations that are out there to try and sift through them, and, and I, I quickly realized that was not going to be an effective way to preach this text, as just trying to deal with the different interpretations uh, would, would uh, take up the whole of, of the sermon. Uh, so instead, we're going we're to take a more simple approach to this passage. There are certainly hard things here that require explanation, but the first thing we should do is just try to hear this passage in its context. If we can keep in mind the context of Peter, uh, that will really help us to understand the intent of this particular passage, and then hopefully that serves as a guide as we work our way through these, these difficult verses. Well, the context is fairly clear. As we've seen in the last weeks, Peter has been urging the, the scattered Christian church to endure suffering well 
as, as Christians. Uh, he's been calling us to, to return good for evil, to bless those who, who curse us. Uh, and especially as we suffer, to make sure that we do so maintaining a good conscience in Christ. Uh, so that we would not, uh, if we are going to suffer, it would not be for engaging in the same works of the flesh as, as the nations and, and people around us. Uh, so you see this very clearly in the verses right before our text in verses 13 to 17. He says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience." So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, that's the context for this passage. Peter is urging us to maintain a good conscience in the midst of our sufferings. So that if we are slandered, or maybe we should even say when we are slandered or reviled, those who revile us may be at least put to shame by our good behavior. Now, we've considered in the last weeks just how hard it can be to live by, by that uh, instruction, how strong the impulse can be to return evil for the evil that is done against us. And Peter's been urging us, don't go down that road. If you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. Suffer with a clean conscience. Well, that really helps us to understand the, uh, the purpose of our text this morning because verse 18 picks up on that very idea where Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. So what's Peter doing here is he's pointing us back to the work of Christ. Uh, and this is really instructive. This is what Peter has been doing throughout his letter. Almost every single time an instruction comes our way, a command comes our way in, in Peter, uh, it's almost always followed by a reminder of the gospel. So it makes this letter such an encouragement to read uh, and to spend time with because you never get far from the gospel in, in this letter. Every time Peter gives us a command, he also gives us the gospel. Uh, chapter 1, you were chosen. Uh, you were caused to be born again. You're being guarded for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You, you call on God as Father. You are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Your souls have been purified. You are living stones built up into a spiritual house. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Christ suffered for you. Uh, I think that's chapter 2. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, Peter never lets us get far from the gospel, and in that he's teaching us a lesson that, that we can really profit from. The Christian life never goes far from the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not something that you receive once at the beginning of your Christian life, uh, and then you, you sort of mature past or, or move on from the gospel. No, the Christian life is a life that is lived out of the gospel all the time. It's a constant and an ongoing response to the gospel. 
And so we want to keep that, that context then in mind. This is what Peter is, is trying to drive home for us as we suffer in a hostile world. He wants us to suffer as Christ suffered. So then what is Peter speaking about when he speaks of, these, uh, of Christ proclaiming to the spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah? Well, here I'll ask you to bear with me as I explain uh, some of the underlying background to this. The, the key to understanding this text is, is an obscure apocryphal book <coughs> uh, known as, as, as the Book of Enoch. Uh, apocryphal books, they, they are these uh, books that, uh, of prophecies or, or other writings that, that have been valued by the church or valued by the Jews before, before Christ, um, but not regarded as, as Scripture. And the book of Enoch is, is one such book. It was written about uh, 200 years before Christ, maybe as far back as 300 years, but it underwent many, many different revisions uh, over time. Uh, and the book of Enoch does contain a number of prophecies that were genuine prophecies from God. Uh, we read earlier from the, the short letter of Jude, and, and there it quotes a prophecy from Enoch. Uh, it says, Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam. Uh, and that prophecy is taken verbatim from the book of Enoch. So, so there clearly were some, some prophecies in there that were genuine. Uh, the chapter we read from 2 Peter as well uh, quotes a, a prophecy from this, this book of Enoch regarding the fallen angels. Uh, so, so clearly the, this book does contain some uh, material that, that was from the Spirit, that was from God. Now, I should get this out of the way right away. That, that might make us wonder, well, should we then as a church have received the book of Enoch as part of Scripture? Well, the book of, of Enoch was, in fact, received uh, as part of the Bible by many of the early Christians, many of the church fathers, Athenagoras, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, uh, Irenaeus. Uh, many of them quoted it as part of Scripture. Tertullian even called it uh, Holy Scripture. Uh, and, and that's because it does contain some genuine prophecies. The problem, though, is, we don't know how much of the book of Enoch is from God. Uh, the book is actually a compilation of different prophecies from different eras containing some material that is not from God. Uh, it wasn't written just by one author, but by, by many different authors. Uh, and some of the prophecies there are clearly uh, wrong. They're, they're historically inaccurate or they even contradict the rest of the message of Scripture. Uh, the Jews, for their part, never received this book as part of Holy Scripture, though they certainly studied it and, and benefited from it. Uh, and this is the position that, that the Christian church today, and you see this in the Belgic Confession as well, takes regarding these apocryphal books, uh, that, that the church can profit from them. We can benefit from their instruction, but we do not regard them on the same level as as Holy Scripture. They are books for, for studying and learning from, for, for shedding light on our understanding of Scripture, uh, but we recognize a, a categorical difference between uh, Holy Scripture, the inerrant, perfect words of God, and, and these, these apocryphal books. Well, in any case, here then, Peter is alluding to something from this book of Enoch. Uh, it's a vision that looks back to that strange event that we read about in Genesis chapter 6 uh, from the time of, of Noah. Uh, and so we need to then pause and, and say a few things about that event as well, if we're going to understand what Peter is doing here. 
Now, now uh, there are undoubtedly many questions surrounding that event in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, one of the popular Christian interpretations is that this, the, the sons of God uh, in Genesis 6 uh, refers not to angels, but rather to, to the line of, of Seth, uh, the, the people of God, and then the daughters of men, uh, by that interpretation, refer to the, the line of Cain. Uh, so the theory goes, all this is talking about is some intermarriage between these two different lines of men. Well, that, that approach is perhaps attractive because it, it, it's, it's a more sanitary uh, interpretation of, of Scripture. But it, it's not what the text says. And, and we should be careful here to, to interpret Scripture as Scripture calls itself to be interpreted. And here it speaks of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, nowhere in Scripture are the line of Seth known as the sons of God, much less are the line of Canaan known as the daughters of, of men. Uh, everywhere else in the Bible, when you read the phrase, the sons of God, it refers to the angels, uh, and the daughters of men are, are the daughters of, of men. Well, here we need to reckon with the reality that Scripture presents us with a world uh, that, that may be foreign to our Western ears, uh, a world that is both physical and spiritual. Uh, and in that world, there is a cosmic war taking place. Uh, the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men is not just a war that takes place here on earth, but a war that has also been taking place in the realm of heaven. Now, there are many other places in Scripture where you read about this, these angels battling against one another. Now, that may lead to all sorts of unanswered questions, many which we, we will not be able to answer, uh, but that is the world that Scripture wants us to see. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 6 also writes about this. Your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Well, what happened then in Genesis 6, as the, the Jews had always understood it through the centuries, uh, as the book of Enoch also records it, and as Peter and Jude also explain it, uh, is that the sons of God, the angels, that is, betrayed the kingdom of God and sinned against God by abandoning their natural place as spiritual beings in heaven and by having sexual relations with the daughters of men, uh, producing thereby a, a generation of so-called Nephilim or, or mighty men. Now that act in Scripture is regarded as one of the most grievous acts of treason against the kingdom of God, not to mention an act of immorality and perversion, crossing boundaries that are not to be crossed. Now this is why Jude sets this event alongside the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as these, these moments in history where perversion reaches a high point, where, where rebellion reaches unknown, uh, unknown levels. Uh, and and uh, that act also had the, uh, the effect for, for, for these rebellious angels, had the effect of promoting the kingdom of men, the kingdom of Satan. Uh, that generation of, of mighty men, Nephilim, uh, they were an evil breed. They, they were not good uh, people. Uh, so the very next verse, uh, verse 5 of Genesis, Genesis 6, tells us the wickedness, on that, uh, uh, the wickedness of man in that time was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's when God uh, declares that he will send the flood. 
As we look back on, on that time, we recognize the flood is, is to this day the single greatest judgment that God has ever poured out on this earth in which God extinguished all but one family of, of, of the entire human race. But it wasn't only the race of men that God judged on that day. Uh, what, what Scripture tells us, uh, especially here in Peter and Jude, is God also judged the angels for their sin of that day. Uh, and that's what the book of Enoch records. It tells us that God dealt out judgment not only on the race of men, but also in the realm of heaven. He had those perverted angels committed uh, to a fiery prison to be kept there in their misery to await their final judgment. Uh, both Peter and Jude confirm this. So Peter, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, uh, it says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and, or, and the word in the Greek there is Hades, referring to this waiting place uh, where they waited for judgment, cast them into Hades and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought, upon a, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Uh, there he's, he's, he's saying there's judgment on both fronts. In this cosmic battle, God judged the earth, and God judged the, the rebellious angels. Uh, Jude says the same in verse 6, uh, "...the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority..." But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, this is clearly the event then that Peter is also referring to here in 1 Peter 3, when he speaks of these spirits uh, in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What Peter is saying in our text here then is that Christ, after his death, uh, whether that's in the intervening three days before his resurrection or after the, the resurrection, we, we don't know. But he says Christ was made alive in the spirit and went and proclaimed his victory over against these disobedient spirits. And here's why Peter is telling us this. Remember again the context. Peter wants to encourage the church in a time of great suffering, in a time when it seems that the kingdom of, uh, of Satan has, has all the power against the kingdom of God. Peter wants to encourage us uh, and encourage the suffering church. And what Peter sees is a parallel between those days, the days of Noah, and the days in which he was writing to the church. In both cases, the war between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God uh, was fierce. The battle was fierce. Uh, in both cases, uh, that war was spiritual as well as, as physical. In both cases, the, the powers of darkness were operating in the world uh, and were hard at work. Uh, in both cases, the, the, the kingdom of darkness was marked by, by perversion uh, the Roman Empire was famous for, for all of its different sexual perversions and, and unnatural desire. You notice both Peter and Jude use that, that phrase. Uh, and in both cases, the, the righteous remnant that was on earth was suffering greatly. Uh, Jude speaks of how, how Lot suffered in his righteous spirit as he, as he endured uh, that, that time in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and in both cases, it looked for all the world 
like the kingdom of <clears throat> like the kingdom of Satan had the upper hand and was only increasing in power on the earth. And, and, and then finally, in both cases, as Peter understands it, uh, the, the church was living in a world that was under God's judgment, that was about to face a severe judgment. And so Peter is teaching the church to keep perspective in times like this. He's saying, remember, those angels, when they sinned in that season, when it seemed like the whole earth and half of heaven was aimed against the church and against the kingdom of God, and it seemed like, like Satan had the upper hand, those angels are now waiting for their final judgment. Those angels have seen Christ made alive in the Spirit who has proclaimed His victory over them, and they know their impending doom is coming. Those angels who seemed so powerful at that time are now in chains, in torment, in prison, trembling with fear, knowing the judgment that's coming their way. And Peter wants the church to know that, to keep perspective uh, for all the heat and all the suffering that the church is enduring under the cruel and perverse and immoral and unnatural uh, world and all of its persecution, the judgment is coming just like it did in Noah's day. So it will in ours as well. Now, it may be hard for us to, to appreciate the comfort that, that Peter intended by these verses, uh, but that is how Peter intends it, as comfort to the suffering church. The point is, the persecution is not going to last forever. The immorality of the world around us that grieves our hearts when we see the sexual perversions of our country, that is not going to be tolerated forever. It's going to perish and it will face its consequences as it did in Noah's day. And, and brothers and sisters, we need to know that in our day as well. Even if right now we as a church experience a measure of freedom uh, in, in our culture, uh, yet we grieve. We grieve like, like Lot did uh, as we look at the immorality of the world around us. As we see the world crossing boundaries uh, that ought not to be crossed. And we recognize these things are incurring on our nation the judgment of God. Uh, and even this disease that the world is suffering right now shows how quickly God can bring a nation and empire to its knees. So Peter wants the church to recognize this. You live in a world that is under God's judgment uh, for all of its sins, and that judgment will most certainly come. But then that leaves us with a question as well. What about us? What about the church in that country, in that culture, that's about to face that judgment? What about us? And that's where the rest of this text comes in. Uh, Peter goes on saying, uh, uh, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, likewise baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, of course, but as an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Now, what Peter is saying here is that just as Christ preserved his church in that day, though it was so small in just the family of Noah on, on the ark, uh, so God will also preserve his church from the judgment of God uh, coming on our world today. 
Uh, And the ark here is our baptism into the name of Jesus. Just like the blood that was spread on the doorposts in Egypt, uh, that that was their salvation from the judgment of God that came over that land. So baptism is our mark of deliverance from the judgment of God. Being baptized into Christ Uh, we are saved from this judgment. Now, we do need to say just a bit more about about what does Peter mean when he says that baptism saves us. Uh, And particularly, uh, as as he says, uh, it saves us as an appeal for a good conscience. Uh, This verse has been used by some to defend the position of adult-only baptism because the argument goes, uh, baptism saves you as an appeal for a good conscience. And so you can only be baptized, uh, the argument goes, uh, once you have a good conscience, uh, which means once you are uh, an adult. Well, the problem is, Paul says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where your good conscience comes from. Uh, It's the resurrection of Christ. That's the thing that makes our conscience clean, knowing that we in Christ have gone through judgment to the other side. Uh, And it's not the other way around. It's not as though having a good conscience uh, is, uh, is what obtains for you the resurrection of Christ. No, it's the other way. It's being a part of, having a share in the resurrection of Christ is what gives you a good conscience before God. Uh, uh, so, so what Peter is saying is, baptism saves us because it signifies our share in the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, and that is the reason why we have a good conscience before God. Now here too, we have to be careful when we, when we think about what Peter means when he says that baptism saves you. Uh, He makes it very clear in the next verse, uh, he's not talking about a ritual by itself that saves you. It doesn't save you by virtue of you being wet. Uh, That's that's not where your salvation comes from. Uh, But rather, he he says it saves us insofar as it points to our union with Christ in his resurrection. And that's what saves us. But he does have here a very high view of baptism. Baptism is the mark given by God that you belong to Christ, that you share in His resurrection, and that therefore you may have a good conscience before God. Having said that, then let's go back to to the text to understand what Peter is doing with this. Uh, So again, Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, here's the good news for the church of Peter's day and for the church of of our day as well. For all the suffering that the church is enduring, for all the mockery and the, the abuse that the church receives, even with all of the powers of darkness seemingly aiming their weapons against the church, uh, and, and many, many terrible things yet to come in the church's future, Peter, uh, Peter would have the church know that Christ has conquered the powers of darkness, uh, and that Christ is also the church's salvation, the ark in which the church is safe 
from the judgment of God that's coming on our world. And that's the big idea in this text. Christ has already overcome all of these angels and powers of darkness. And he sits at the right hand of God with all powers having been subjected to him. Uh, that means uh, all of the forces at work in, in, uh, in, in the church's day, in Peter's day, uh, are, are subjected to Christ. Uh, all those who, whose attacks the church is feeling, those powers will have to give an answer to Christ. Christ who is the Lord of the entire universe, both physical and spiritual. Uh, and meanwhile, here below, then, as the church dwells in a culture that is perverted, in a culture that has uh, transgressed boundaries that ought not to be transgressed, and in a culture that is headed for judgment, we, the church, have the assurance that though that judgment will come, and though we may feel its heat, yet Christ is our salvation. Christ is the ark that will carry us through those judgment waters. And Christ is the reason why we may have and may keep a good conscience before God in the sight of this world. Let me just conclude then with a few words of application. Uh, number one, uh, we should recognize that the peace and the security that we experience as Christ church here in the West uh, is not normal in, in church history. It's not normal. Uh, perhaps because we, this is all we've known, it, it feels to us like normal. Uh, but in fact, when you look at history as a whole, it, it is very abnormal that the church has, has experienced such peace with the world around us. Uh, most of the church, even around the world today, does not experience this kind of peace and freedom. Uh, and it wasn't even that long ago that the church in the West uh, had a taste of what it's like to be uh, persecuted by, by the world. We think of the churches that, that survived under Nazi Germany uh, in, uh, in our own history in the West. Uh, many pastors were, were taken away to, to death camps uh, as a result of their faithful witness to the truth of God. So, so we should not forget that in, in times of peace, we should not forget uh, times of trial and suffering may yet come again. Uh, it's in those moments more, more than ever that the church cries out to God as the church ought to, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, and it's in that, in that time that we need to remember more than ever that Christ is victorious against all of the powers of darkness. Uh, in the second place too, we do know something in our day, in our culture, we do know something of that, that perversion and evil of the kingdom of darkness that Peter and Jude also write about. Uh, every now and then that, that darkness is turned directly against the church, but even when it's not, uh, nonetheless we experience uh, and our hearts grieve at, at all of this immorality around us. Uh, and we do well to, to cry out to God about this, just as Lot did in, in his day, to remember uh, the, those times of judgment that have come on the world in the past and may well come on the world again. Though it seems like peace and security, it isn't for long. Uh, remembering those times then, we, we should live with a deep awareness today that we, we dwell in a culture that is under God's judgment, that is headed for judgment. 
Uh, even though in this world Christ is building his church and building his kingdom, uh, God will at the same time punish the world for its sins, and no sin or corruption will go unpunished. It's what Peter especially reminds us of in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, saying, On the one hand, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Uh, God, God does both at the same time. He rescues us from trials, but he will punish those uh, who transgress against him. Uh, there's something unique about a culture, too, that has reached a point of rebellion uh, and immorality, that they begin defiling the flesh and acting against nature. This is something that uh, both Jude and Peter point out. He says, uh, he, he keeps the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despised authority. If there's one commonality between the world in Noah's day and the world in Lot's day, and the world in Peter's day, and the world in our day. It is that, that crescendo of sexual immorality, boundaries being transgressed, abandoning natural desire for what is unnatural. Now, Peter is not saying that those who engage in such works cannot be saved. The whole message of this book is that's who you once were. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers through the precious blood of Christ. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chapter 4, verse 3, the time is, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, the gospel message is, is not that those who've engaged in such works are beyond the hope of, of salvation. Uh, or those who, who, who feel the pull and the temptation of those perversions around us are beyond uh, salvation. Uh, but rather the gospel message is you've been delivered from that and are now called to abstain from those passions for which the judgment of God is coming. Uh, the, the gospel message is that's who you were, but that's not who you are. You've been brought out of this world, called by Christ and given a holy name to now live out of God's grace, to be there with the family of God on the ark that is carried safely over the waters of judgment. Now that grace then is, is sealed to us in our baptism in Christ, and Peter is calling us, in the trial that's coming, in the suffering that's coming, in the judgment of God on our world that's coming, hold on to Christ in the midst of your sufferings and live out of Christ with the good conscience that Christ has bought for you. Uh, the judgment will come, but God will keep you safe.